Hello, and welcome to the CFA UK podcast series on climate change. My name is John Tihan, and I'm a portfolio manager with Red Wheel. This is part two of my conversation with Tom Gosling. In the first part, we focused on assessing evidence underpinning sustainability research and also how to consider non-financial issues within the context of our fiduciary duty as stewards of our clients' capital. We continued the conversation with me asking Tom about his two blogs on the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, or GFANS, and the clash that was developing over the commitments made under that umbrella body. This is sort of quite, quite difficult territory for someone who would like us to see taking more action than we are on, on climate change. But I, but I do think it's always important with these voluntary initiatives to ask the question, you know, are they likely to be effective uh, and are they the best use of, of, of time and resources? And um, yeah, I got interested in, in, in GFANS because I wanted to have another look at application of this, of this framework that we developed with the Investor Forum. And um, I think there is a particular issue that's, that's arisen with GFANS, which relates to the specificity of the commitments that, has been, that have been made. So GFANS participants, um, it's the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which comprise, uh, there's a banking group, there's an asset owner group, there's an asset manager group, there's an insurance group. Um, but in aggregate, they, they, they have all signed up to a sort of a headline commitment to um, act in support of a 1.5 degree world. And indeed, they, GFANS has been linked with Net Race to Zero, which is um, a UN body that is pushing for 1.5 degrees um, and actually 1.5 degrees with limited or no um, overshoot. And so then what the GFAN signatories have to do, if we take it into an asset management context for the moment, which is kind of the main focus of this discussion, there's then the Net Zero Asset Management Alliance, which is sort of the asset management subgroup of GFANs. Um, they have signed up um, to um, do um, three things uh, fundamentally. So one is to in, in, in under this overarching goal of supporting global efforts to limit warming to 1.5 degrees with, with limited or no overshoot. They've agreed to work in partnership with asset owner clients on that decarbonization agenda. They, they're required to set an interim target for the proportion of assets to be managed in line with this net zero um, objective. And that target has to be reviewed every five years and ultimately ratcheted up to 100% of their assets. And then in terms of what it means for assets to be aligned with that 1.5 degree target, I mean, that's something that's kind of being worked out at the moment. And there's a number of different standards um, that are being um, developed to, um, to work on that. But they all come down really to four things. Uh, one is um, engaging with companies to get them on more rapid decarbonisation pathways that are consistent with 1.5 degrees. The second is at the portfolio level, looking at their overall portfolio carbon footprint and putting that on a trajectory that is consistent with 1.5 degrees. And then there's some stuff around um, investing in climate solutions that are supporting 1.5 degrees. And then also some of the frameworks have, have wording around policy advocacy in relation to 1.5 degrees um, as well. And the thing that's quite interesting about this is that 1.5 degrees with um, limited or no overshoot is, is, is a pretty challenging scenario. In fact, I mean, most scientists would say that that's almost inconceivable now for us to get there, given what we've already put into the atmosphere and the current trajectory of climate policies. 
I mean, to put it in context, it would require us to reduce carbon emissions by, well, in my blog, I put 8% a year until 2030. I noticed that a PwC report came out yesterday, which said it's actually 12% a year, uh, every year till 2030. And to put that in context, even in the COVID year, when everybody kind of stopped flying and we had shutdowns, large parts of the economy, we only reduced emissions by, by 6%. So this is now in no way can be called the most likely scenario. And importantly, it's economically very different from other more realistic net zero 2050 scenarios, which might get us to example for two degrees, which, um, you know, could allow you know, two thirds more oil and gas to be burned than in a 1.5 degree scenario, for example. So these, the, the, the specific scenario that signatories have signed up to is both unrealistic and over the next decade, economically very, very different from what are much more realistic scenarios on our pathway towards net zero at some point in the second half of the century. There's so, so much to unpack there, Tom. <laughs> the question is, where do you start? And I guess the first thing is, you know, we have to be honest, and that is, are we being genuine about what we think we can do? Another important part is, are we inhibiting government action? And that's one of the accusations being leveled against um, the asset management industry by what we've been saying we're doing on sustainability, that we inhibit government action. Do you think we are inhibiting government action? No, is the short answer to that. Um, I, I think this is an unjust accusation put against sustainability um, activity. I mean, I, I'm sure there are, you know, some people who you know, prefer self-regulation and, 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 and therefore, you know, view voluntary action as a way of staving off government action. But, you know, I don't think there was great evidence of, you know, decisive government action in, in, in some of these areas. Um, I also that, that, that that's being stymied. Uh, but also, I think that actually business showing willing um, to go down some of these pathways, if anything, makes it easier uh, for governments to act. So I, I don't I don't put a lot of credence on on that being the problem. I think the reason why governments aren't acting much more dramatically on climate change than they are is that, um, you know, the political pathways to decarbonisation involve disruption to, to to lifestyles and habits and ways of earning a living for quite a lot of people and governments find that you know tough to do uh so i i think there are just some political truths why it's hard to decarbonize i i, I don't think that that, that that this activity is is inhibiting it so if we're not inhibiting government action then I, I do believe there the vast majority of people in the industry are trying to do the right thing they are trying to figure out ways that we can help society economy and various industries to get to net zero what then do you think is that we're going wrong here? Where are we going wrong in terms of what we're trying to do? If you stand back and you think GFANS is genuinely committed to doing this, what's happening that you think we, we need to be clear on? So I think that GFANS has made a mistake in locking T specifically onto this 1.5 degrees with limited or no overshoot scenario. So the world is clearly decarbonized. Okay, and that's not just for environmental reasons. The economics are starting to turn in the in, in favor of decarbonization as well. So, you know, at, at some point, I mean, whether we'll get to net zero by 2050 or not is, is, is an open question. But I think the, the world is on a clear pathway to economic activity decarbonizing very substantially. I think the problem with locking on to the 1.5 degrees with limited or no overshoot 
scenario is that it is now a very unrealistic scenario. And um, if investors do what they say, um, you know, then one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to um, invest in a way that actually isn't in the financial interests of their clients. That's one possibility. So if you genuinely believe in 1.5 being what you're shooting for, you will push your investee companies to decarbonize much, much more rapidly than you would do if you believe that two degrees was kind of the realistic outcome you were investing for. So those companies may well find that they've incurred greater costs or missed opportunities as a result of that more rapid decarbonization, because it's not just free to make some of these changes in certain hard to abate um, industries. So you may find that investors have pushed activities upon companies that are not not effective for them. They may equally have missed opportunities for continued investment in, for example, you know, the oil and gas industry, which may end up being profitable for longer than people would like to believe if we have a two degrees rather than a 1.5 degree scenario. And then finally, at the portfolio level, if investors are latching on to portfolio decarbonisation targets, that will lead them for, to divest from you know, heavy carbon emitters or heavier carbon emitters at a rate that, again, may not be suboptimal for return, from a returns perspective, because there are many outcomes, scenarios that are possible. One is that governments do you know, slam on the brakes and introduce an overwhelming policy response to get us to 1.5 degrees. It's, it's just about possible still. Um, but there's another scenario that means that we kind of drift on and wait for economic forces to dictate the rate of decarbonisation. And the outcome for specific companies and specific portfolios will be very different in those scenarios. And a 1.5 degree aligned portfolio is not necessarily the optimally risk managed portfolio for clients. So I think that the problem with investors is, is latching on to this particular commitment. And now what's going on is a whole lot of work to help understand, well, what does 1.5 degree portfolio alignment actually mean? And there are working papers and there are lots of bright people spending lots of time on what may ultimately just be sort of portfolio divestment strategies to reduce carbon emissions. So I think there's a, I think that what we're doing is, is, is potentially focusing a lot of effort on the, on the wrong areas. And there does seem to be a lot of confusion around what those targets should be. When you look at the disclosures um, on, on the, well, it was back in May, the, the disclosure and report on what commitments had been made, you can see a whole host of approaches. Some approaches are about decarbonizing portfolio, looking for a reduction in carbon. Many others are focused on engagement to get um, uh, underlying companies to net zero. If you're not going down the decarbonization at a portfolio level route, isn't it, isn't it a very worthwhile and I, I would argue authentic way of approaching it, engaging to get to net zero without specifying what decarbonization means? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, you know, and I do think that, in, that this is why I don't quite buy this sort of inhibiting action argument, because actually I think that investor engagement on climate has definitely pushed climate up the agenda of boardroom discussions to a greater degree than would have been the case without that investor engagement. And then, you know, if companies and investors are all talking about the importance of decarbonisation, that makes it much easier for governments to act in a sensible way. So I think engagement is, is a very promising um, avenue. And I, and I think that actually, when you look at the evidence on what does bring about change in the real world, actually, there's a decent amount of evidence that um, engagement by investors with companies does change and, and alter what companies do. And I think that investors can do a lot to encourage companies to go 
as fast as economically practicable on their decarbonization journey. I think the mistake we make is when we think that investors can somehow overcome fundamental economic signals and drive economic activity in total contradiction to those signals. That, I think, cannot happen. And I think that that's a little bit where we are, actually, with 1.5 degrees with limited or no overshoot. And so given that investors aren't actually going to drive activity in the face of fundamental economic signals, that leads you to much more focus on these things like portfolio decarbonisation metrics, where it's really questionable whether they achieve anything in the real world very much at all. Uh, and are simply just devices to enable investors to say they're meeting their GFAN's commitments. Is there a sanction if these commitments are not met? So if a firm commits to a certain amount of portfolio decarbonisation by 2030, if that target is not met, what, what happens then? Well, great, great question. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I think at the moment, probably not a lot, um, although that is something that is currently being looked at. Uh, I mean, I think certainly race to zero would like there to be sanctions for firms that don't follow through on their commitments. And that could potentially include being ejected um, from, from GFANS. And that would have, obvi have obvious reputational considerations because, you know, I think one of the reasons why firms sign up to these initiatives is that they have clients that want them to be taking action on climate. And this is a visible way of demonstrating your commitment. But as we've seen in the controversy just recently over the summer, um, you know, I think that GFANS is, is facing a tension between keeping as many people as possible in the tent uh, and enforcing kind of standards of leading climate stewardship. And at the moment, they seem to be tending towards keeping people in the tent. I mean, this really came live in the issue of coal financing. So if you believe that you're investing towards a 1.5 degree world with limited or no overshoot, it's very difficult to see any role for coal in that. I mean, it's just one of the things that's, that's kind of pretty clear. And yet the flip side is that the world is definitely still seeing a, a role for coal, you know, for the next period of a couple of decades at least. And so, I mean, this is one of the things that points towards 1.5 with limited and overshoot being unachievable. But it also brings some of the fiduciary questions into play because, you know, if GFAN signatories are being forced to relinquish opportunities, profitable opportunities in coal financing, um, you know, what should they do about that from a client perspective? Now, this really played out in the banking sector because, of course, you know, coal is a very small portion of most listed asset managers' portfolios. You can frankly divest from coal and have with zero tracking error, pretty much, in terms of your portfolio. But for banking, it's a different question. I mean, most financing of coal projects is debt financing. You know, it's still a profitable line of business for some banks. Are they meant to forego that profit uh, to meet a decarbonisation goal? Uh, and what right do they have to make that decision on behalf of their clients and beneficiaries? And so we saw that tension playing out, particularly with some US banks, if, if what's reported is to be believed, and it seems very credible to me. And as a result of that, actually, race to zero blinked, and they watered down the coal financing requirements to keep more people in the tent for longer. But I think that this, as time goes by, this issue is just going to crop up in more and more cases where the reality of what it means to invest for 1.5 degrees butts up against the commercial realities that firms face in a world where that is not the objective that governments are working towards. Governments are working towards gradual decarbonisation that at best will enable us to limit warming probably to two degrees, but, but not 1.5. And, and I think that conflict 
between economic signals and fiduciary duty and the commitments that Race to Zero are making are just going to get worse and worse for asset managers. So something's, something's got to give. And going to those commitments, were they tightened up over the summer to, to, to a greater degree than what was previously there? They were. I mean, so there's been a whole process of tightening up. Um, so Race to Zero um, tightened up their, um, their requirements somewhat. Uh, the most prominent was this one around what it really meant for coal financing. But that is now one that they backed off a little bit. Uh, and, you know, GFANS produced a whole series of publications on what various aspects of the commitments that GFANS members made might mean. Now, I, I think that those publications, um, you know, were more interesting in relation to kind of what they didn't say and what they didn't conclude and what wasn't in there. and just shows how hard a lot of this stuff is. But I think the, the tension around the role of Race to Zero is quite similar to the tension around the role in the Sainsbury's case of becoming a living wage accredited employer, because in, in essence, you're handing over a decision about what's right for your business or right for your clients to a body that doesn't necessarily have a multi-stakeholder view of the world. So the Living Wage Foundation is very much focused on living standards for low-paid workers, but not necessarily so concerned about the broader economy and you know, shareholders and customers and so on. Similarly, Race to Zero is very much aligned behind this objective of, you know, 1.5 degrees with limited or no overshoot and doesn't really have a stake in the fiduciary, if the, if the interests of, you know, fiduciaries' clients. So, you know, I think that um, this is why I think something's, you know, going to give in due course, because either, either there is not going to be this ratcheting up of commitments uh, or we are going to see people leaving GFANS. And there have been a couple of small asset managers who've left mainly on the sort of reporting burden uh, grounds. Uh, but I think we may see more leaving in due course and unless there's a way of reframing the commitments that is more aligned with the reality that these firms face. And this is what I think is a bit of a shame because, you know, as we've already discussed, the investment industry could really be a great agent in support of decarbonisation across the economy. But we need to align it to a realistic decarbonisation goal that society is actually pursuing and that economic incentives are aligned with and get investors focusing on those areas where they could really uh, make a difference. And you know, we can maybe talk about some of those, but clearly engagement is, is one of them. Looking at the commitments so far, you believe most commitments under Enzam are based on decarbonising a portfolio. But it also seems to be credible, or at least that Enzyme has allowed up to now, the approach that you can use engagement and you can use a top level objective of aligning companies to net zero without having to specify what the decarbonization of the portfolio will be. Yeah, and I think that latter approach is, is much, much more fruitful, frankly. Um, and um, I would much rather see the emphasis shift to that. Um, but even there, I think we've got to be careful in that that engagement, you know, can't push companies to do things that are completely unrealistic economically because boards just aren't going to do that. But I think that investors through engagement can certainly keep the pressure up on investee companies to make sure that decarbonisation is given its appropriate weight and that you know, efforts are made to see if decarbonisation can be you know, accelerated. I'm actually fundamentally an optimist around decarbonisation. I mean, I think as we get our act together around this, I think we can decarbonize at a lower economic cost that is, than is generally assumed. So I think it's, it's great to have 
these these pressures in place. But I think there are other areas that investors could could helpfully focus on. I think a really interesting one that's come into focus just recently is in the role of lobbying. Uh, and I think that when we go back to this sort of systemic risk argument, uh, I think that having kind of robust institutions that make sensible policy is clearly in the interests of the market as a whole. And investors as broad-based owners across the market do have an interest on behalf of their beneficiaries in sound policymaking. And when we get, you know, some of this really quite disreputable, you know, science-denying lobbying activity that goes on, I actually think there's a very fruitful role for investors to actually push companies to disassociate themselves from that type of activity, to not fund that, that type of activity, so that we get a more robust policy framework. I also think that investors, you know, need to do more work on, you know, really figuring out how do we scale some of these difficult to finance areas that, for example, require blended finance solutions? You know, how can investors devote really significant amounts of resource to working with kind of multi-stakeholder bodies on, on, on that kind of issue? So investors can, can, can do a lot. They can ensure better disclosure, you know, and I'd much rather that the GFAN's commitment were reframed explicitly around investors, you know, helping wherever they can on this decarbonisation path to net zero, as opposed to locking on to a specific goal that really has the risk of becoming a little bit of a distraction and, and, and undermining the, the, the broader initiative. And how would you police that then? Because it's obviously the challenge and why maybe the, the metrics were very attractive for GFAN's we know what we need to do at a global level to reduce emissions by 2030 and then by 2050. But when we talk about the softer elements of engagement and pushing companies in the right direction and making them go as fast as policy, if you would like, allow, how do we assess asset managers and those commitments? So um, the first thing I'd say is that we have to recognise that any of this kind of voluntary activity through the finance system is only going to help a bit. Right. So until I'm a kind of an old fashioned kind of taxes, regulation and subsidies guy. Right. I mean, I think that if we really want to shift the dial on this, we, we are going to need governments to shift the economic incentive. So we should start off just by being modest about in our expectations about what these initiatives would achieve. But in terms of how we hold people accountable, I mean, I think this can only come. I mean, I think asset owners play a really important role here as, um, you know, representatives of their beneficiary groups. And um, through demanding clearer disclosure from asset managers around what they are doing in these areas, and I think that's a useful part of, 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 of the GFAN's initiative, then I think we rely on asset owners to hold asset managers accountable in, in the tendering and the client management, uh, provider management um, process. And that's where, you know, some of these metrics aren't entirely unuseful. Okay, so portfolio carbon content metrics are, are a useful indication of what's going on. Now, you always need to look under the bonnet and if someone is, you know, cutting their port carbon portfolio metric, how are they doing it? You know, is it through divestment? Is it changes in portfolio composition? Is it through companies genuinely, you know, reducing operational emissions? So, you know, if, 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 if the carbon footprint of a portfolio is shooting upwards, it's an indicator that there's something to look at. I think the problem of these metrics always becomes when they're the defining, you know, um, metric about success or failure. 
they're just one part of many ways in which asset owners need to hold asset managers accountable. But you know, they're going to struggle to do it because of resource constraints. These are very complicated questions to get under the skin of. But I think if asset managers know that um, these things are being looked at more, um, then in the same way as boards of companies, if they know that asset managers are looking at these issues more, they pay more attention to them. And developments like, you know, I've heard talking to a number of asset managers, you know, the stewardship code in the UK, I think, has been helpful in making stewardship and demonstration of stewardship much more of a board level priority in asset managers. So there are there are regulatory initiatives that can help with this. But, you know, again, we need to be modest about what we expect. Of them. You wrote another blog about divestment and, and, and your colleague who you referred to earlier, Alex Edmonds, has also written a paper recently on divestment and, and whether it was you know, whether it was useful or whether it had a real world impact. You looked at some studies that claimed some real world impact and you found that that was quite questionable. Do you think the industry is now starting to understand the limitations of divestment? It's it's had such a, a tailwind, if you like, in the last few years. Do you think that's changing? Yes, I do. I mean, I think that, you know, to to say that divestment doesn't have great real-world impact on companies is, is probably not that controversial a statement now in the, in the investment community. And so the idea of holding on to companies and engaging with them to bring about changes as opposed to divestment is, um, is increasingly popular. I think the problem is that, um, I, I, and actually, I mean, one of the things that um, uh, Alex talks about, Alex Edmonds talks about in his paper with Doran Levitt and, and Do, Do, uh, Jan um, uh, Schneemeyer is that actually there's a sort of a nuanced version of divestment, which is kind of tilting, which is sort of divesting selectively from the worst performers in an industry rather than just doing a blanket divestment uh, from companies in an industry can potentially create more incentives for change. And I think the big problem with divestment is that if you have blanket divestment from a sector, there's not a lot that boards in that sector can do to reverse that. Right. So if you just say, I'm not going to invest in tobacco companies, short of ceasing to be a tobacco company, you know, there's not a lot that the board can do. So it doesn't actually create incentives for change. And there are lots of studies that show that the impact on kind of cost of equity is, 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 is pretty marginal. So I, I do think that, that the industry is coming to understand these issues. The problem is, if you are um, an index provider, for example, um, then one of the easiest things that you can do to demonstrate that you're doing something on climate change is to divest from some oil stocks or to have a lower carbon footprint from your portfolio. And unfortunately, what we know from a lot of the consumer research is that consumers aren't that discriminating when it comes to these green initiatives, provided that a fund passes a sort of threshold level of greenness, they just feel comfortable that they're doing something sustainable and they don't look under the bonnet too much in terms of impact. So, you know, there are quite a lot of incentives for um, asset management firms to provide products that rely on divestment, even while understanding that maybe it's not bringing about a great amount of real world impact. I think even though it's a gloomy Monday morning, I think with our discussion, I've seen an awful lot of hope here because while there are challenges with GFANS and with Enzam commitments, I do think there is a road there to be taken where we can have a much more sensible um, commitment, if you like, to what we can do. And, and that being what we've just discussed about taking a more nuanced approach. But it is difficult to communicate a more nuanced approach. I, I would share your optimism. There's a really important role for the investment industry to play. I do think 
that the launch of G fans let the rhetoric they let the rhetoric get away with them a bit, uh, and you know equated the 130 trillion of assets under management by G fans signatories to the 100 trillion of you know transition finance that's needed. Although they're kind of completely different numbers, and so there's a certain amount of sort of uh, reputational damage that will occur from backing away from that commitment. However, I do think it's really important to find a way to reframe it or we will spend quite a lot of time on unproductive stuff that is sort of pretending that we're meeting that GFAN's commitment, as opposed to the really productive stuff that we've talked about, the investment industry can really do to help us all on this, you know, societally crucial goal of decarbonizing as quickly as we sensibly can. I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there, Tom. We should be focusing on things that actually make a difference. There's an awful lot of displacement activity, if you like, we're spending our energy on where if we cut through the noise and look at what we could actually do, be very clear to our clients what we can do and be clear to society what we can do. I think then we can actually have a really positive, positive impact. Tom, I could spend another couple of hours discussing these issues with you. Thank you so much for your time. Your blogs, as I said, are, are fantastic. I'm always dipping into them to, to try and help me think through these issues. So please do continue writing them, even if you don't always hear from us. Please um, continue to challenge those those big debates or address those big debates in, in the industry. It's been a pleasure to have this discussion with you. Thank you very much. And thank you to our audience. Thank you for listening. And if you like the podcast, please hit like or share. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs>